Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The Missouri legislature begins its final week with a $49 billion budget passed, but a lot of policy remaining that could find its way past the finish line in the next five days. Some of those include photo ID, changing the initiative petition process, as well as completing a congressional redistricting map. House Minority Leader Representative Crystal Quaid joins the show this week to talk about the newly passed budget, as well as Democratic priorities heading into this last week. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us in the Jefferson City studio today, she is the minority floor leader for the Missouri House of Representatives and represents the 132nd district, which consists part of Springfield. Crystal Quaid. Thank you for joining us on the show, Representative. Before we get started, I'd love it if you reminded our listeners just a little bit about your district, uh, where it covers, and who you represent. Yeah, well, as of right now, my district is downtown Springfield, uh, Missouri, and I have uh, Missouri State University and then go to the northern portion of the city. After redistricting, I will change slightly where I will no longer have the university. It'll be mostly northwestern part of Springfield. So we are recording the Monday of the last week of session. In your opinion, how do you feel that the session has gone so far? The session has been weird. (laughs) You know, from the Democratic lens, it's gone okay, uh, considering there have only been six bills that are an appropriation bills that have made it to the governor's desk so far. So it's uh, been going all right in terms of policy, but it has been, as I said, a very strange year with lots of contentions and infighting with the Republican Party. And, you know, we're interested to see how these final days will go. How do you feel that House Democrats have meaningfully contributed to the session? Yeah, so we have been very engaged uh, through negotiations um, on the actual language of policy. And so while there hasn't been a lot of bills that have made it to the governor's desk yet, there still are a lot of negotiations happening. We do expect a busy week this week of things getting through. And so, you know, we have learned being in the super minority that you don't necessarily get your bill across the governor's desk, but you can be very instrumental in crafting what the policy is by having discussions, building relationships. And our team has been really good at that. It seems as though the Senate has been the source of a lot of problems in terms of passing major GOP priorities. Has the slowdown also affected Democrats' ability to get things done? It definitely has in some ways, uh, for sure, because as I said, a lot of times we will get things through just language. We do a lot of amendments, obviously, because we don't get our bills heard very often. Um, And so, yes, it has in a lot of ways. I would say in some ways it has given us more ability to be influential um, because there are fewer opportunities in the House for legislation to go through. And so they definitely need our votes. They are very divided when it comes to the conservative caucus and the moderates, even in the House. And so our 49 votes become really important when they're trying to pass something. 
And also, you know, in some cases, is the uh, Senate slowdown really kind of beneficial to Democrats when it comes to passing legislation that Democrats don't want to see? Absolutely. Being in a super minority, a big part of our job is to play defense. It is to look at this extreme legislation that's being filed and do everything we can to stop it from passing. And so it has gone really well in that front. One of the big things that did get done last week was the state budget, which House Democrats generally supported. How did it get to a place where your members could sign off, especially when your caucus typically is critical on how the GOP crafts its budget? Yeah, this was definitely the first year that I voted yes on nearly every budget bill. I have never done that before, and I served on budget before I was floor leader. Um, so it... One thing I would say is because of the Biden administration, we have an influx of money. And so, as everyone has said, we have a surplus more than we've ever had. And so instead of playing defense, as I mentioned earlier in the budget, where we have found ourselves in the years past trying to protect seniors or folks with disabilities or programs that we really, really care about, MoRx, these other things, um, we were able to actually uh, be a part of the discussion in how we wanted to spend that money, doing teacher pay raises, fully funding school transportation, uh, fully funding Medicaid, you know, the things that we desperately have been fighting for for years. The money was there thanks to the Biden administration to do that. I know we just talked about how the Senate has been the source of, of problems, but in budget discussions, uh, teacher pay, public transportation dollars, the Senate, including Republicans at times, really advocated for positions the Democrats supported. I'd like your thoughts on how the House tackled this budget versus the Senate, yeah. in your opinion. Um, this is, you know, we do often find ourselves as Democrats supporting the Senate version of the budget, often. Um, and this year was no exception. And, and as much as I hate to give credit to my Republican Senator Lincoln Huff, um, I do have to give him a shout out for his diligent work on the budget this year. You know, on the House side, there was delay, delay, delay. And a lot of folks were talking about that. The fact that um, this was so rushed at the very end was because of the House. Um, folks sat on the plan for a very long time after the governor gave it to us. Um, and there was not a lot of, you know, it just didn't happen quickly. And so when it went to the Senate, we essentially, the House gave them a blank check. And we had talked about that when we were having the debate on the House floor, particularly with the ARPA money, but also with the operating budget just leaving so much on the bottom line that the House just decided to not spend. So then the Senate was able to look at all of that excess money and say, OK, what are we going to do with it? Um, and so you saw, as, as mentioned, the teacher pay, the transportation, but then all sorts of really cool, innovative things that we are investing in as a state. Um, and so, yeah, the Senate was able to spend that money. And um, as in the conference committee, you saw a lot of my members uh, supporting the Senate position. Is there anything that your caucus wish made it into the budget that kind of just didn't end up being there? Yeah, there's there's always more that we wish we could have done. Um, you know, I had mentioned MoRx. Uh, that's a, a program for prescription uh, drug coverage that um, that we just haven't reinstated from many years ago. Um, the teacher pay, while we have great starting, we did a starting pay increase. It's not enough. We are still one of the lowest in the country, even with the the small bump that we did. And so we would like to have seen a more comprehensive teacher pay plan, um, and not just for starting pay, but for folks who've been doing the work for a very long time. That's a that's a really important piece of it that was lacking. Um, worker pay, uh, children's division is something that we have heard about for years about the turnover and how we just cannot keep kids safe because we don't have the staffing. So, you know, there was all, a lot of places like that that we wish we would have been able to do some more investing in. Um, but overall, we were decently happy with where it landed. So we're recording this at 1015 a.m. on Monday. And when you're a couple hours after you're finished recording this, you're going to go on the House floor and you're going to deal with congressional redistricting. Do you think that the legislature will end up passing a congressional map before session adjourns on May 13th? Why or why not? 
I don't. <laughs> um, and frankly, I'm a little surprised that we're trying again in the House today. Um, and the why not is because the conservatives in the Senate have made it very, very clear where they stand on the congressional mapping. Um, I don't know. I'm not privy to any negotiations where they have come to an agreement. Um, and what I do know about the map that we're going to be debating today, I don't even know that folks on the House side are all in agreement of where that that is going to be presented. Um, so we'll see. You know, the final weeks are always intense, and it's very possible that there's some piece of legislation hanging out there that the Conservative Caucus really desperately wants and they're willing to bend on the map for. But the past five months have not given us any indication that they're willing to negotiate on it. I know there's probably a feeling among your caucus that courts would draw a congressional map that is better for Democrats. But I've also been talking with election officials who are absolutely incensed that the map isn't done yet. And it's going to cause all sorts of problems for their ability to administer the upcoming primary election. How does your caucus weigh these two goals, especially when you do have some leverage on the emergency clause issue about whether the map would go into effect right away. Yeah, you know, this is not unlike any other thing that folks desperately care about where we have to weigh our votes and whether what, what we do or what we don't do. You know, there there is a school of thought that the Republicans have supermajorities and have for been, been governing our state for 20 years. And if they can't pass legislation uh, without the Democrats having to get engaged, then, you know, why should we help them? And that is something that we honestly talk about, um, especially when it's something really bad that we disagree with. Uh, but then at, to your point, the alternative is, is that, you know, we have elections coming and this absolutely has to get done. Um, our folks every step of the way have been open to negotiations. We've been proposing things that we think are fair. You did not see me come out with, with a, a Democrat map um, ours was very much um, a conservative estimate of where the numbers are um, whenever we proposed ours. And we've been trying to be a part of the discussion so that we can actually get our job done. Um, but, you know, here we are at the final hour and uh, those those back and forth will be part of the discussion again. We'll see how much they're willing to include our pieces, uh, our amendments and our ideas in the map, um, particularly when looking at congressional districts one and five where there are Democratic con con Congress people. Those districts really are important to our folks because that is who we represent. And so we'll see if they're willing to hear what our side of the aisle has to say when it comes to how we vote. One more redistricting question before we move on. And I want to talk about the first congressional district. And before I ask this question, I should note that keeping that district majority African-American has been a goal of black leaders in St. Louis literally for 50 or 60 years and transcends who is in the office now. But the, the current proposal, uh, Democrats agreed, and especially in the Senate, agreed to take strongholds that voted for Congresswoman Cori Bush in 2020 and placed them in the second district like Richmond Heights and Maplewood. And there's a lot of Democrats who like Cori Bush who are really not happy with legislative Democrats for doing that. Um, what's kind of your thought process about how the first district should be uh, constructed? Because I know that's a really important issue for your caucus. Yeah, I will first say, you know, I don't live in the first district. Uh, obviously, I live in the seventh, which is very far from being a Democratic congressional seat. Um, yeah, you're yeah. Not, yeah, it's 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 out of reach. For <laughs> completely Democrats, out of continue. reach in my lifetime. Um, you know, so so all I can say in response to that is, you know, what my folks on the ground are saying, and you are absolutely right that keeping that a majority minority district is imperative for everyone who lives there. Um, when we look at population changes in those areas, you know, you've got a factor in North County um, and uh, and the populations that have left um, the district. And then, of course, as you said, in the in the southern parts as well. And the thing with redistricting 
is you can literally do this any way possible. You could grab five voters from here, move them there. It truly is down to each individual person and those numbers. And so there are members of my caucus who wanted different things who live in CD1. Um, absolutely. And, um, you know, I am putting my faith and my trust into my caucus members who served on the committee. Um, it's Jerome Barnes, uh, Donna Berenger, and Lakeisha Bosley. They spent over a year working on this. And when they come to me and say, these are the shifts that, that we think we should make, I'm going to listen to them. Um, to your point, those specific neighborhoods, I believe most of those shifts were made in the Senate um, by amendments that were offered over there. And so, you know, when it comes back to how it goes today, again, uh, depending on what the map Dan Shaw presents us, Representative Dan Shaw presents, um, my members will have amendments ready to go. And um, as I said, I'm going to defer to my folks who've been doing the work. I'm going to move on to a different topic. Last week, the Senate passed an election bill that would reinstate Missouri's photo identification law also allows for two weeks of no excuse in-person absentee voting. Is this something that would be an acceptable outcome for Democrats, even if you all vote no? So I haven't read the bill yet. Um, and so that's that's very important. I actually had a discussion on my drive-in today about the bill. Um, I haven't read it yet. Uh, so I don't know what additional provisions are in it. There's been a lot this year on in terms of voting um, that may or may not have been included in that. So it's hard for me to say a, a straight yes or no, depending on what the other provisions are. That said, when it comes to voter ID, um, you know, time and time again, the Republicans continue to pass it. And then we've seen the Supreme Court say, no, you can't do that. So I haven't read the language yet to see if it's something that that we would be willing to compromise on, you know, with that potential that the courts may reject it. Um, I am very thankful that the Senate was able to put in the no excuse early absentee voting. That's something that we saw during COVID is imperative for people. Folks take advantage of it. We had record numbers when that was an opportunity for us last election. Um, so I'm interested to read it. And and I apologize that I am not going to just say yes or no, because I like to read legislation before I say what I'm going to do. Um, but I, again, you know, I trust my colleagues on the other side of the building. And if they had faith in it, um, I'm eager to read it and see where we stand. And so kind of why shouldn't the voter ID law be reinstated when Missourians voted overwhelmingly to authorize one in 2016? Yeah, this is uh, the co the constant question anytime we talk about uh, initiative petitions or anything uh, to that point. I obviously was not an elected official when that happened. Um, but I will say this. Um, one, we know the courts have continued to strike that down. Strike that down. Um, the second piece of when it comes to voter ID that I don't think gets enough attention is truly how many minorities are impacted. When you look at numbers, and I apologize, I don't have them offhand, but when you look at the numbers in our state of who is impacted by not having an ID, we're, we're mainly looking at seniors with fixed incomes, um, and we're looking at the black, black populations. And so when it comes to whether or not folks should have an ID. I know it's easy for people to just simply say, everybody's got an ID, they should just be able to walk in and it's no problem. But the reality is, is there are a lot of people in our state who don't have access to one. Um, and then there's provisions that we've talked about in the past where we give it away for free. Um, but I don't know if any of you have actually tried to get something done in the state of Missouri right now with our government, but Medicaid is, <laughs> to get Medicaid uh, approval, it takes upwards of four months right now. And so we are not very efficient when it comes to getting things out to folks who need them. Um, and so whenever we have that discussion, the, where my head goes is who isn't allowed to vote. What we're seeing this year, not only in Missouri, but across the country, is legislation moving that makes it harder for individuals to vote. We see legislation that is taking away ability for election authorities to pay to have elections. And <laughs> in our country, we should be doing the opposite. We should be making sure that everyone who is eligible to vote 
vote is able to do so in an effective way. And this legislation that's moving time and time again to just make it harder is something that Democrats just don't stand for. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest today is Democratic Representative Crystal Quaid, who represents the 132nd District, which includes parts of Springfield. Let's get back into it with some more questions. Do you think legislators will place something on the ballot? We're going to kind of talk about ballot items. Uh, Do you think that legislators will place something on the ballot that would make it harder for initiative petitions to go before voters? I know that it is a priority of a lot of my Republican colleagues to put something um, to make initiative petitions harder, whether that's on the ballot or via statute. There, I believe, are close to 20 different things filed this year um, that in some form or fashion make it harder for citizens to put something on the ballot. Um, I do believe that the HJR, the House Joint Resolution, to get it to the ballot is probably the only vehicle left. Um, But what that looks like, you know, to to be determined because lots of folks have ideas. Um, I will tell you outright that is something that we completely oppose as the Democratic caucus. Um, I fundamentally believe that citizens should have the right when their legislature is not doing something that they want them to do or is doing something or did something that they disagree with, that they can hold us accountable, that they can go to voters and say, hey, Jeff said he did this thing. It's stupid. We don't like it. Let's undo it and let the citizens decide whether or not we are doing our jobs appropriately. We have a really what? great. Oops, go ahead. Sorry. No. Yeah. What do you make of the criticism of the initiative petition process? They're just vehicles for well-funded interest groups to circumvent the legislature when they don't get their way. Like the the adult use marijuana initiative seems exactly like that, even if you agree with the the outcome. Um, what do you make of that criticism, not only from Republicans, but by everybody in the legislature? I would say if that was a real criticism that folks in the legislature believed, we would be having discussions around campaign finance reform and we would have discussions around how these things are funded. But that is not what we're seeing. We are seeing things on on how many signatures need to be collected, threshold changes, but we are not having discussions about campaign finance. And so if folks want to, I'm down for that because we look just not even just with initiative petitions, but when you look at elections, when you look at what bills are passing and what aren't, what isn't passing and who is funding those, what lobbyist groups and then which lobbyist groups those folks give money to, we could have a very, very robust discussion around campaign finance ethics. Um, And so I just I I wish that was the discussion at hand. There's also a measure that would allow Missouri lawmakers to effectively defund Medicaid expansion, as well as other parts of the state Medicaid program. Do you think that proposal gets stymied in the Senate, especially more than 100,000 people have signed up under the expansion? I'm really hopeful that that bill does not go anywhere. That's House Joint Resolution 117 by Representative Cody Smith. And I say that because I want folks to know what is actually going on here. You know, uh, the citizens, after over a decade of asking for Medicaid expansion, used the initiative petition process because the legislature wouldn't do it and passed expansion. And then it was upheld in the courts. Um, And so this Medicaid expansion is the law of the land. And we've actually fully funded it in this budget. So I'm really excited by that. Um, And so I think this conversation around taking health care away from people who are just receiving it is not just ridiculous, but it's um, unkind. 
I mean, we could talk about that all day long, Medicaid, just as itself. But we have folks for the first time in their lives, adults, who are getting health insurance. Um, And a reminder to folks, this isn't free health insurance. This is health insurance that people are paying for. Um, And so for us to be having a conversation after all of this, after all of these years, out of after all of the work and effort and the courts saying that this is the law of the land, for there to be a discussion right now to undo it is just ridiculous. A, a couple more questions because we know that your time is limited. Another measure that some want to move in the final week of the session would place a ballot item up before voters that would place language in the Constitution that that document does not provide a right to an abortion. And this is viewed as a preemptive move against litigation against Missouri's so-called trigger law, which was passed in 2019. Uh, What do you think about the chances of that passing in the last week of session? You know, it hasn't really been a a big point of discussion this year. Uh, when sessions started, there were a lot of abortion things filed, uh, mimicking Texas's law, some other things, but they, none of them have really gotten a whole lot of attention. And the reality, Jason, I think it's the reality is, is if Roe is overturned, Missouri will have one of the most restrictive um, laws in the entire country. Um, already, we are one of the most restrictive uh, with what we currently have on the books, but but with with Roe being overturned, then yes, it is very very extreme. So there, I just honestly have not heard a whole lot of discussion from anybody about it. That doesn't mean it doesn't come out um, in these final days, but it just hasn't been a huge point of discussion. And one of the reactions I've I've seen from abortion rights activists in, in, in reaction to the draft that came out last week, that if abortions are basically banned in the state, with the exception of medical emergencies, women could still go to states like Illinois or take medication mailed to their homes to terminate a pregnancy. But there's been legislation to try to shut off both of those avenues that have not advanced yet, but may advance either at the end of session or next year. Is that the next fight for abortion rights proponents if the Dobbs decision overturns Roe v. Wade? I absolutely think that it is. Um, as as I mentioned, we have seen legislation filed um, that mimics other states um, in terms of the the text with the Texas language, uh, I believe, as Mary Elizabeth Coleman had, where um, you would you can turn folks in uh, who are accessing treatment, and those folks are fined. Um, so yes, I think that it is definitely the the next fight that's going to happen, um, and we need to be ready for that. But the reality is, as I mentioned before, in the state of Missouri, even with instances of rape and incest, you will not be allowed to get an abortion. And we have the clause of medical emergency, but it is not well-defined. And so I want to say to folks that if Roe is overturned, we're not talking necessarily that that all instances of a mother dying would be considered a medical emergency. I don't feel safe with the language that we have that that would even be covered in all instances necessary. And so Yes, we need to be prepared for that next fight, uh, but the reality is where we are now in our state, because of the passage of House Bill 126 a few years ago, we are not going to have access to abortion coverage, even in cases of rape or incest, and that is the fight that people need to be talking about right now. 
at this point, is the best way to roll back Missouri's laws to pass something on a federal level? And do you think there will be a, a voter backlash after the Supreme Court decision comes down, especially since there wasn't discernible electoral blowback after 2019? You know, it's something that everybody's talking about. Some folks are saying, oh, this is great for Democrats because people are going to turn out. And then other folks are saying that, no, they're not going to. If they didn't turn out for Sandy Hook, they're not going to turn out for this, right? Um, there's no way to really know what this is going to do. Um, but I can tell you that women are scared. People are scared. And I have had lots of folks call, reach out, and email and, and say, what can we do? What can we do? The reality is in Missouri, as you kind of alluded to, our state is so um, ruled by the majority party who does not want folks to have access to health care that um, it's going to take a lot for Missouri to get back in a position where we can pass our own laws. And so, yes, it needs to happen on a federal level. But I will say this. We need to work locally and we need to elect people who believe that government should stay out of a doctor's offices, that that people we need to elect people who believe that the government has no business telling folks what they can and can't do with their own bodies. And we need to elect those folks in the House and the Senate because these decisions are made here. And we've been saying it for years that until you elect folks locally, we're, we're going to be facing these types of situations. And here's the reality now. We see it. We know it. We've been saying it was going to happen. And here we are. So folks need to get galvanized. They need to turn out. They need to elect people who believe what they believe and understand that every local election matters. Um, and while we're doing that, we need to simultaneously be paying attention to the federal government because, yes, Missouri is a long way from being able to make those changes. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Representative Quaid, for joining us here in our Jefferson City office for the show. Uh, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... Jay Rosenbaum. And Representative Quaid, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? (laughs) You can find me anywhere, but Twitter is Crystal underscore Quaid. That's Q-U-A-D-E. All right. Until next time, so long.